Hello, everyone. I'm George Selgin, director of Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And I'm very pleased to have you all here to attend uh, what I know will be a very special Cato Book Forum. We've got three star performers for you today. We have, first of all, the book that's featured, uh, that's the subject of the forum. We have uh, uh, Larry White, and we have Russ Roberts. Uh, and uh, uh, I think that uh, all three of them are going to give us a very nice uh, book forum. The uh, book, Renewing the Search for a Monetary Constitution, is actually a reprisal of an earlier book uh, that was edited by Leland Yeager back in uh, 1962. Yeager charged a group of economists to come up with ideas for a monetary constitution, and he specifically told them that they should, quote, take the broadest possible view without worry about political practicality or about possible accusations of extremism. So there. And uh, it's a fascinating volume, the 62 volume. This one, of course, is taking up the same charge once again. And Larry is uh, one of the editors of this volume, as well as a contributor uh, to the uh, uh, volume as well. Uh, Larry is, uh, has described himself in the past as a minor pre-Selginian. This is not entirely accurate. Uh, <laughs> The last time I introduced Larry at an event, uh, I inadvertently uh, uh, said that he was the author of The Theory of Free Banking, which is actually my book. I fear that that was inadvertently a uh, more accurate description of the relationship between Larry and myself. Uh, we've long been colleagues, but he was also my mentor at uh, uh, New York University. Uh, he is the reputed author of, among other works, uh, Free Banking in Britain, the book that uh, made people aware of the Scottish free banking episode, The Theory of Monetary Institutions, the best book, I think, on its subject, uh, and most recently, The Clash of Economic Ideas, which is a history of macroeconomic thought in the 20th century. Uh, <clears throat> Finally, the real host of today's program, Russ Roberts, is someone it's hard, to, it's hard to say what he's best known for because he's well known for so many things. Uh, he, uh, like Larry, uh, Larry is a GMU professor, I should have said, and uh, Russ Roberts was Larry's colleague for some time. Now he's the John and Jean Denault Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and fortunately for us, He's at the Washington division of the Hoover Institution, so we, we get to uh, see him more often that way. Uh, he is the author of numerous books, including The Invisible Heart and Economic Romance, and most recently, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. These are economics books for real people that uh, are designed to help them cope with reality, which you won't find to be the case with most of the articles in the American Economic Review, for example. But finally, Russ is the host of Econ Talk, a weekly podcast featuring one-on-one -on -one discussions between Russ and usually pretty well-known economists. Uh, it was started in 2006, and I understand it's fast approaching the, its 450th episode, 
pretty getting close to that. We're very honored today to have Russ uh, uh, doing this live version of Econ Talk uh, with Larry White. Uh, and, uh, and I hope you'll all give him a warm welcome. I'm also advised, though, before you do that, to remind you to please turn off your cell phones for the rest of the session today. After Russ conducts his interview with Larry, there'll be time for question and answers. And then, of course, we'll have lunch after that. So without further ado, Russ Roberts. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, George. It's, it's great to be here, Kato. I'm curious how many people here are uh, regular listeners to Econ Talk. Raise your hand. So that's a very nice crowd. I appreciate that. I'm always uh, trying to get more, so please uh, help me spread the word. You are my marketing department. Uh, and uh, I appreciate you coming out for this, this live uh, recording and, and very grateful to Cato for hosting, uh, hosting it. So here we go. <clears throat> Today is February 25th, 2015, and my guest is Larry White of George Mason University and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Our topic today is whether we should have a monetary constitution, a set of rules governing government's role in supplying money, along with what those rules might be. We're recording this episode in front of a live audience at the Cato Institute in honor of a new book that Larry has co-edited with Victor Vanberg and Eckhart Kohler, Renewing the Search for a Monetary Constitution. Larry, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Good to be here. Now, this book is the result of a symposium organized by Liberty Fund in honor of a book written 50 years ago, In Search of a Monetary Constitution, which was edited by Leland Yeager. So a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is what we've learned in the last 50 years about money and government's role in money. But I want to start with the basics. What do you mean by a monetary constitution? Well, that's one of the issues we debate in the volume. But uh, you can think of a monetary constitution as a set of rules that govern the creation of money. Um, in particular by the government. So you can either think of it as a set of prescriptions that say what the government may not do to interfere with the monetary system, or you can think of it as empowering the government. And then, of course, you can combine the two. The government is empowered to do such and such, but not go beyond that. So right, we have, uh, there are provisions about money in the US Constitution. So that's one of the topics we discuss in the book. Uh, but you know, there continues to be debate about what they mean, and most of our discussion in the volume is about whether they're adequate, whether we've ended up with the kind of monetary system that the, fra the framers wanted uh, or that we should want. And we're not limited to the United States. We've got uh, many of the contributors are from Europe, so we discussed the constitution of the European Central Bank as well. Well, you mentioned that the Constitution deals with money. It deals with other things, too, by the way, sure. most of which we've managed to neglect. So it wouldn't be unusual that there'd be something uh, similar with money. But let me start with a basic question, uh, which a lot of economists in seeing such a volume would ask. Not me, but uh, others would. What would we want a monetary constitution for? I mean, the Fed's doing a great job. It saved us from the Great Recession. Uh, we had the Great Moderation, this wonderful period of success that was... Uh, stewarded by these geniuses at the, at the great steering wheel of the ship of the economy? Well, I think we found out in the financial crisis that the great moderation was hollower than uh, we realized at the time. Uh, 
In a way, the, the timing of this volume is similar to the timing of the 62 volume in that it's true it's being published in a period of low inflation. Uh, right? Inflation's been between 1% and 2% in the last few years, and in the early 1960s it was between 1% and 2%. But as we've seen in the intervening 50 years, it didn't stay there. Uh, and we had all kinds of monetary troubles in the last 50 years. Uh, and the idea that the Fed had finally figured it out and we don't need to tell them what to do anymore because they've got it completely figured out, I think was revealed to be much too optimistic. <laughs> I'm sympathetic to that view, but let's, let's um, let me push, push back a little bit. So clearly the period from 1962 to 1982 was not so good uh, toward the last part. Very high inflation. Double-digit inflation. Double-digit nominal interest rates as a result. Uh, then there came this, um, this alleged golden era of where they, quote, figured it out. And couldn't you argue that, well, okay, things went bad in 2007, 2008, but that wasn't the Fed's fault. That was the fault of an aggressive housing policy, exuberance, animal spirits. And the Fed actually intervened and did a great job once they were called on to, to save things, unlike the Great Depression, say, where Milton Friedman, uh, Anna Schwartz, others have said they, they, they failed their mission at that, at that time. But now Ben Bernanke, being a student of Milton, he knew what to do, and look how well it turned out. Broad brush enough for you? Yeah, where do I begin? <laughs> well, we've got an hour. Okay. Uh, well, I think the Fed did a little better than it did in the early 1930s in the sense that we didn't have so drastic a collapse uh, in the economy. Of course, a lot of other things have changed that make the economy better diversified. But we did have the sort of careening from 4.5% inflation down to negative 2% inflation and then back up. And then, of course, we had all the financial troubles. And it's true that uh, housing policy had a lot to do with has a lot to do with explaining why it was a housing bubble and not some other kind of bubble. But if you see people behaving exuberantly, and not just a few people, but you see that it's widespread, you have to ask yourself, what's the common signal to which they're referring, uh, to their, which they're reacting? If you see uh, you know, everybody at the party beginning to act a little crazy, you have to ask who spiked the punch bowl. Uh, and my view is that the, the Fed had a lot to do with it. They made the funds available that went into the housing uh, investment well the housing uh, purchases, the driving up the prices of houses, making mortgages cheaper than they, much, than they otherwise would have been, making mortgages available in greater quantity to people who are less creditworthy than in previous uh, experience. So I think it's the interaction of the bad housing policy and the bad monetary policy that uh, spiked the punch bowl that made this overinvestment boom in housing possible. Uh, if you just look at the price level, you wouldn't have seen anything going on. But I think that's part of the problem that the, with the way the Fed has been running policy, they take uh, moderate inflation as a license to do whatever they like with interest rates and with uh, financial policy. So I also add to the mix the uh, bailing out of creditors in the preceding decades to this, which I think emboldened the 
drinkers at the punch bowl to uh, spend a lot of other people's money in irresponsible and imprudent ways. But let's put that to the side for the moment. Let's just look at the last five years. Okay, so let's, so let's be agnostic on whether the Fed is the cause of the drop in output, the high unemployment rate that we dealt with. Mm-hmm. What kind of marks do you give the Fed for its behavior in the last six years when uh, the economy slowly recovered? And many would say, many, again, I, I'm not one of them, but many economists would give them very high marks for averting a crisis uh, injecting liquidity into the system and making sure that the economy uh, recovered. Well, you agree with that? Um, I, I actually have more complaints about the Fed's credit policies than I do about its monetary policies in the last few years. So they've, they've kept monetary policy on a kind of even keel. I think interest rates probably should be higher. Uh, I think they're continuing to keep us in this ultra-low interest rate regime much longer than has been, than is justified. And that may come back to bite us. Uh, I mean, I think that's an excellent point. I think, you know, one view is that it's too early to tell. Yeah. Yeah, it's like when they said, we got a lot of our money back from the bailout or the TARP, and I'm thinking, yeah, what about the long-run costs that you've you've ignored? But, But go ahead. Yeah, so... The real problem uh, in the last few years, during the financial crisis and thereafter, has been the sort of lack of constraint, uh, a lack of limitation on the Fed to the rule of law. I mean, they've sort of been making stuff up as they go along, bailing people out, continuing that kind of policy, um, and creating a very uncertain environment as to who's going to be saved and who isn't. and whether we can count on the market to, we can no longer count on the market to discipline banks that pursue imprudent policies, especially the systematically important banks. Yeah, I think that's a disastrous thing for democracy and, and capitalism. Uh, let's, let's put the Fed aside now and let's look at some alternatives that are discussed in the book. Um, let's start with a, more, a broad question. What's special about money? And you raised this question in your introduction to the book, a very nice uh, essay that that um, explores many of the issues we're talking about today, and I, I recommend it to our readers as well as the rest of the volume. But you start off with a, a very basic question, which is, what's the government? I mean, the government's really involved with money. Has so, been for a long time. Has been for a long time. We understand why uh, sovereigns like sovereigns. That's kind of one of their, uh, they're into that. So what's the theoretical case, if any, uh, for why government should be uh, involved in the supply money? Uh, it's actually hard to pin down what is the case because most economists who even see this as a question, why does government provide money, uh, tend to sort of zip by it in a couple of paragraphs. Like, why is the sky blue? It's just, it's just a reality. We it's, move on. And <laughs> well, so they, it's obvious. Everybody uses the same money. Therefore, it's something the government has to provide. Uh, but if you, if you sort of dig down into the technical question of whether money has the characteristics of a public good, right, the characteristics of being my consumption of it doesn't diminish your consumption of it, like when I tune in the radio, it doesn't diminish the amount of radio you can tune in, that doesn't apply to money. The money in my pocket is not in your pocket. You're using the public good here as a technical term that economists use for special, 
Not, it doesn't mean just a good thing. No, and it doesn't mean you know a good thing for the public. It means a good that the market has trouble providing because you can't sort out who's getting the benefits in what degree, and you can't exclude people from enjoying it even if they don't pay. So the market does well with goods that where you can make the user pay, otherwise you don't get it, and then you have an incentive to supply it because you get paid for supplying it. So the claim is that money is different from that, but it's, it's hard to see it. I mean, uh, as I said, the money in my pocket's not in yours, so banking is- Could be though. Banking has been private <laughs> for a long time, well. Uh, before that, coins, same story, the coins in my pocket are not in your pocket. Uh, if you ask why did government get onto this track of monopolizing the production of money, you have to go back to the early monarchs and kings who uh, monopolized the mints. Uh, but it wasn't always so. Uh, as far as we know, the earliest mints were private merchants who were sort of certifying the weight and the purity of the pieces of metal uh, they were trading with. And if you ask why would government take that business over, and we've got lots of ex historical examples of private mints, uh, even in the 19th century before they were outlawed. In the California gold rush, there were a dozen private mints. Uh, why would government take that over? Uh, it's like asking why does government run buses? There are sort of two possible explanations. One is there's a market failure to produce sufficiently the good in question. And the other is that it's somehow in the government's interest, most likely there's a fiscal motive. Uh, and if, if you look into the question of whether governments have improved the quality of coins when they've been in charge of issuing silver and gold coins, the answer is no, they notoriously have debased the coins. Whereas the private mints actually had a pretty good track record because their business depended on the coins being regarded as reliable. Whereas if you have a monopoly, and you have a law that says people have to bring their silver to you for coinage, they're not allowed to take it anywhere else, you can debase it without losing all your uh, customers. So just on the evidence, it, doesn't, it seems like the fiscal motive was at work. And, and debase- Fiscal motive makes it sound- um, Raising revenue. Pretty highfalutin. Yeah. It means t exploiting the opportunity to control the currency to make, make keep more of it than they otherwise would. Make a profit, that's yeah. right. And it, in the Middle Ages, it, during wartime, sometimes half, two-thirds of the sovereign's revenue came from the mint. Uh, so if you want to be less highfalutin, uh, they asked Willie Sutton, why did he rob banks? And he said, that's where the money is. Yeah. <laughs> why do you control the mint? Because you can make a lot of money doing that. You can call in the old coins, take half the silver out, issue new coins, and you've got, now you've got half the money supply uh, to you replace everybody's coin with one that has half as much silver, now you've got half the silver to spend. Uh, if you move on to sort of more modern money, it was banks that introduced checking accounts, that introduced paper money in the form of banknotes that were redeemable uh, for gold or silver. And governments eventually monopolized the issue of paper currency. They haven't monopolized, at least in the United States, the issue of checking accounts in some developing countries the only checking account you can get is in a government-owned bank. So, and they use that as a source of revenue. I have to mention a couple of things just that I find amusing when people say, well, if there was private issuing of money, they just exploit it and make a profit. Of course, the government's done that for centuries. Yeah. You, like, you might like to think it was confined to monarchs, 
But of course, in democracies, that tendency apparently has been a problem as well. Um, we've done better recently by the historic, relative to the historic record, and we'll, we'll come back to that. I just want to make one other point about public goods, though, because it's so, I think, important, this temptation to say, well, we know from theory that X can't exist. Famous example is lighthouses can't be privately provided because it's a public good, and Coase pointed out that communities of sailors got together and found a way to provide a lighthouse anyway. And uh, I remember, oh, maybe 20 years ago, papers being written that said we had to have government control of taxis because there, it would be inefficient, too many cabs would come in, all the cab drivers would be driven out of the market, they wouldn't make enough to stay in business. And yet somehow Uber and Lyft and others are thriving, not, not in the way that the theorists imagined, of course, mm -hmm. but in a different way that we weren't as economists clever enough to imagine. So I do think we should always be careful about when we say government has to do X. Having said that, James Buchanan argues that it's efficient for government to provide money. So what, are your, what is his argument and, and uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? I want to react to something you said a minute ago, which is uh, when private people produce money, they also exploit the profit opportunity. Well, but as long as it's, they're under competition, it's not that they earn monopoly profits, it's that the public gets a, a better product. Uh, so you know, Buchanan, uh, I don't know if this is going to be one of his last publications, because he uh, died shortly after our conference. Uh, well, nine months after our conference. Uh, this may be one of his last papers. Uh, Buchanan makes the case that the monetary constitution should empower the government to produce money and direct it to stabilize the purchasing power of money. So when he says inefficient, what he seems to mean is you're not going to get the kind of money you want unless you write down the set of rules saying this is the kind of money we want and direct the central bank to produce money that has that characteristic. So he draws a distinction between money and other goods, uh, which we were talking about a minute ago, and says money is different in that with other goods, we just provide a legal framework and let the market sort out what the qualities of goods are going to be and who produces them and what the prices are. But in the case of money, we want to specify the characteristics uh, in terms of the behavior of the purchasing power of money because the most important thing is predictability. And predictability means either zero inflation or an easily predictable rate of inflation. Uh, I think he's kind of jumping the gun here. Uh, there are theoretical arguments that uh, the public may prefer uh, money that actually pays a positive rate of return. Milton Friedman's famous optimum quantity of money argument is that if you had the government acting in, in issuing uh, unbacked paper money, if you had it acting like a competitive firm, they would have to pay a competitive rate of return on this IOU they're issuing. So it should appreciate. Or in terms of the price level, the price level should be gradually falling. Um, they're that's sort of looking at it from the point of view of a monetary consumer. Uh, so it depends on what, cons what kind of money consumers want. And I think uh, Buchanan's preference makes sense, but it may not be everybody's preference. And we shouldn't short circuit the market process of discovering exactly what kind of features people want in their money. 
given a choice between paper money that's manipulated in a certain way or that is supposed to be manipulated in a certain way and a commodity money, people may prefer a commodity money even though gold does not have a perfectly constant purchasing power uh, under the classical gold standard. Right? There were years of plus two inflation and years of minus two inflation. Although, you know, on average, it had pretty close to a zero percent rate of inflation. So let me, let me bring back to this uh, constitutional idea. Uh, you could argue, it would be foolish, but you could argue, wouldn't it be better if Americans only had one religion? We could all be together, one big community. And yet we've decided constitutionally that that's a bad thing for the government to try to create. Uh, and so in that case, it's very clear that there's a bunch of people who want no religion. There's a bunch of people who want a religion other than what the central religion would be. So going back to your, your version of Buchanan's argument, okay, maybe, maybe Buchanan's wrong. Maybe people want lots of money, uh, different kinds of money. But I, I, want, I want to think about the constitutional issue in a slightly different way, which is we basically say to the government with respect to religion, hands off. Uh, don't get involved. What's the argument for that in the monetary constitution? What's the monetary analogy? We see its virtues with respect to the press, with religion. Uh, one of the challenges I think you have of convincing people who are skeptical about the virtues of, of a hands-off policy is that well, we've never had that, and that's, that scares me. So I think I'll stick with the devil I, I'm used to. But make the case for why a, a, that particular proscribed uh, role for a constitution would be a good idea. So I don't want to make the argument that uh, if we left it to the market, everybody could have their own kind of money. Well, they could, but everybody would have their own kind of money, and you'd have, you know, hundreds of different competing monetary standards in the same economy. I don't expect that. All the historical evidence suggests that there are reasons of convenience to converge on a common monetary standard. But the question is, which monetary standard should it be? Uh, what that would mean for a monetary constitution, a sort of hands-off policy, would be have the usual rule of law, property rights, contract, enforcement, have those kind of things apply to monetary contracts, um, have the ordinary rules of business law apply to banks, but don't have special discriminatory laws that hamper banks or that favor certain banks. You know, for a long time we weakened the U.S. banking system by uh, restricting banks, say, from branching across state lines. In recent years, we've switched. Fix that. We switched. We've switched. We fixed <laughs> I need that. a couple of them, really. <laughs> we've switched to weakening the banking system by giving them privileges. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that they have less incentive to behave prudently. Uh, so if we, if the government had never interfered, and I have evidence on this in, in my, the chapter I contributed to the volume because my chapter is on the history of free banking uh, and the theory of free banking. Uh, we can look at systems that had the most minimal government intervention. There, there's no case of zero, but uh, the systems where the intervention was the least were the most stable and had the most success, had the most innovation in banking, had the most competition, of course, in banking, provided the best services at the uh, best prices to their customers. So why did they end if they were so good? 
I think largely for fiscal reasons. So the, the system I've written the most about is in Scotland, uh, roughly from 1720 to 1845. Uh, but in 1845, the British government, because Scotland was part of the United Kingdom now, uh, decided to sort of amalgamate all the banking rules uh, between the rest of the United Kingdom and Scotland, which up till then had had sort of separate set of banking rules. Uh, basically for the benefit of the Bank of England, which was the monopolist in London, that was lending money to the British government. So the wider the circulation of Bank of England notes, the more it can lend to the government. Uh, and there seems to have been some concern about Scotland being a kind of embarrassing example of how the government doesn't need to uh, intervene in the banking system. But anyway, if you, if you look at that case, if you look at other cases, I think the pattern is pretty clear that the least restricted systems are the ones uh, that performed best from the point of view of the average user of money. Uh, and those were systems that were on gold or silver standards. And there doesn't seem to have been any uh, great dissatisfaction with that. There were proposals by some economists to try to have a system that was even more stable in purchasing power. But in retrospect, the variations in the purchasing power of the dollar under the classical gold standard uh, were trivial compared to what it's been under the post-gold standard period, the fiat dollar standard. Uh, and Buchanan talks about predictability as an important feature of money, and I agree it's more predictability is desirable. But if you look at the one practical uh, fallout from the shift to a fiat dollar is that the predictability of the purchasing power of the dollar has gone down. It's true that in the last few years, inflation has been uh, fairly low and steady. But nobody can count on that continuing. And so nobody's willing to buy 50-year bonds under today's monetary standard the way they were under the gold standard. Uh, because they can't predict what the dollar is going to be worth 20, 30, 50 years from now. Explain what fiat money is. So fiat money is money that's not backed by gold or silver or any commodity. It's just issued by the decree. Fiat is a technical term meaning a decree. Uh, by the decree of the government. So the government says this is money. And if you read the fine print on your dollar bill, it says this is legal tender for all debts public and private, which means this will pay any debt denominated in dollars. Uh, if you've been paid with these pieces of paper, you can't go to court and say I haven't been paid because when I made the contract, I was expecting to get gold. Uh, too bad. If I make a contract that says I want gold, I can, I get the, I can enforce that though, right? Or no? That remains, Bitcoin. To, that remains to be determined. Uh, it, it's actually a little bit up in the air. The uh, availability of gold for ownership by U.S. citizens, which was illegal for several decades, has been restored. So you can own gold. You can write contracts denominated in gold. The question is if the other party wants to pay them off in dollars, what the court will decide. I don't think we've had a clear ruling on that. So your example was... If we started from scratch with, say, free banking, it, we have some evidence that it might turn out okay. We're not at scratch. We're in the middle. That's right. So give me a possible route by which 
we could either reduce or eliminate the government's role in, in the issuing of currency. Right, one, right now, if, if I want to issue a uh, currency that competes with the government, I guess it's um, iffy. It's not, because Bitcoin's out there. Yes, I did a paper for the Cato Monetary Conference a few years ago, which is in the Cato Journal, uh, on two cases of people who tried to compete with the Federal Reserve in issuing money and were shut down by the federal government. Uh, the case of the Liberty Dollar, which was a silver coin and uh, a silver-backed banknote. They didn't shut down the banknotes, but they came and raided the operation and confiscated all the coins they could find. Uh, this was a project by an entrepreneur. Well, it was a nonprofit project, but uh, an entrepreneur named Bernard von Nothaus. He was convicted <clears throat> of... What was the crime? The crime was there's a provision in the federal law dating back to the Civil War that makes it a crime to issue pieces of metal, well, or anything, that are intended to circulate as currency. Uh, he was also convicted of counterfeiting, as though his coins were identical to the US coins, which was ridiculous. But uh, he was recently uh, sentenced after many years of delay, and was, uh, his sentence is limited to uh, probation and monitoring. So that was a relief. You got to keep an eye on a guy in case he starts printing up coins. But his, coins. his business was shut down, <laughs> and people who are owed money from that business yeah, has, yet to be, has yet to be resolved. So, so, so the, the message was sent. And the other business was eGold. So eGold was a convenient dash e gold. E dash gold. Well, I'm not, actually, there wasn't a, a dash in oh, the, sorry. the trademarked <laughs> name of it. Uh, eGold. eGold. So it was an online system for transferring ownership of gold. So it was like a bank where your account balances were in gold ounces, and you could transfer them to other people in the system, uh, just like you can you know, go online and transfer dollars in our current system. Uh, and that was shut down for violating money laundering laws. So one way to come back to, to open, reopen the possibility of owning sound money for people uh, is to um, eliminate these kind of legal barriers that prevent private entrepreneurs from trying to introduce some other kind of money. Now, I a minute ago talked about the convenience of being on the same monetary standard with everybody else. So I don't expect these kind of projects or Bitcoin to take off in a big way uh, until the dollar starts to show much greater instability than it has at the moment. Because you see that, you've seen that in Latin American countries, high inflation, people dollarize themselves. So they use an external money. Uh, and in the extreme cases, the government tosses in the towel. So in Ecuador, they said, okay, nobody wants our currency anymore. Let's just stop issuing it and just have the dollar be our official uh, monetary. The US dollar. The US yeah. dollar. Uh, so that's one way to get a sounder money, but so we, we don't want to go through that. So we should be rooting for inflation. No, we don't want to go encourage, through that. No, okay. But, but my question is, uh, you know, for example, I'm trying to think of analogies that would give people comfort. So FedEx came along, right. and FedEx found a little loophole in the, you know, the, the U.S. government has a monopoly on the delivery of letters and first-class first mail, class mail yeah. whatever that means. Of course, it's open to interpretation, I assume, but FedEx created a product that was considered legal, which I'm sure took some creativity. Um, it was express delivery. Express delivery, overnight quick, um, which certainly was in contrast to its 
government competitor. Um, and it turned out pretty well. The government didn't, the government could have shut them down. They could have changed the law. Yeah. Legislators could have responded, changed the legislation to prevent them. The courts could have ruled in favor of the post office. Monopoly. Correct, in which case uh, there'd be no competitor. Or the, gov the, the government also could have said, hey, this is great. We can get out of this business. We'll do something else. They didn't. They, they've moved along in parallel. Other places have come along. DHL, UPS, et cetera, that, and UPS was already delivering packages, but express delivery became more diverse. It, what would be your ideal for how we would allow um, a thousand flowers to, to bloom? Would, we, would you like to see the government just say, anything goes? We're, we're open to competition? Or would you, is it better to have the government out of the business entirely? Well, the first step would be to say it's open to anybody who wants to come along with a, a new idea. And so we repeal the law that makes it a crime to produce pieces of metal of whatever shape and design uh, that are intended to circulate as money. Uh, we revise the money laundering uh, laws uh, and the know your customer restrictions so that there's a level playing field. What are know your exactly. customer restrictions? So know your customer is nobody's allowed to open an account or transfer money basically without revealing their identity to the institution that's doing the money transferring. So uh, you can't have Swiss banks in the United States. You can't have numbered accounts. You can't have anonymity. Uh, that's right. That's to prevent criminals from. So if we were serious about that, we would want to withdraw $100 bills because that's actually the preferred medium of payment for criminals. Yeah, and there's been some serious talk about that actually, right? Because that would raise the cost, presumably, of transacting. You'd have to give out 520s. It'd be exhausting. Um, <laughs> but getting the government out of the business is it actually a thorny uh, question. As, as I've said, there's a great convenience in being on the same monetary standard. So it seems to me we can't just advocate for liberty uh, of competition in money, but we also need to do something to write a constitution that constrains the existing monetary system um, or provides a path work, uh, sorry, a path for uh, winding it down. I mean, one way to wind it down would be to go back to a commodity standard. Right? We used to have a monetary system in the United States without a central bank. We could go back to that. It's pre-1913. Pre-1913. How was that possible? But it happened, didn't it? Uh, well, we'd have to put a different monetary standard in the place of the Federal Reserve dollar. So a commodity standard is one option. People in the volume talk about other options. Uh, instead of a single commodity like gold or silver, a multi-commodity basket. Uh, is one possibility. Just freezing the supply of Federal Reserve liabilities so the Fed no longer has discretion to run a monetary policy is another possibility. Uh, but then there are sort of more status quo oriented or more moderate ideas discussed in the volume, like uh, Scott Sumner's idea to give the Fed a set of instructions uh, about monetary policy that eliminates its discretion. And that, of course, is an idea that goes back to Milton Friedman and before, um, that we would want the monetary rules rather than the discretion of monetary authorities. 
I'm, I'm going to come back to that, but I want to, since you brought up uh, uh, a commodity standard such as gold or silver or a basket of commodities, I want to talk about that. Uh, and I want to again bring it back to what modern macroeconomics, uh, the way I was taught. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you were taught that way too, but you know, there's a certain mythology, perhaps some of it's true, perhaps none of it, you, you tell me, but there's a certain idea that, well, before 1913, before there was a central bank to conduct monetary policy, the economy was st struck now and then by the whims and, and winds of, of uh, gold supply, animal spirits, et cetera, and there was no way to counter those with, with monetary policy because there was no central bank. And the virtue of the central bank in this story is that it's a, uh, steer, a steering wheel that allows us to offset the, uh, the swerves and spills that would otherwise take place if no one were in charge. So it, it, if we had a, and help me out here, how, what's the difference between, say, the free issuance of currency private and, say, a gold standard? What, or a better way to say it, pre-1913, okay. what, what world were we in pre-Federal Reserve? It wasn't free banking. No. Right, so what was it? It was a system in and what which, was good and bad about it? Uh, we had a gold standard. And why might we want to go back there or stay away? We had a gold standard. Paper currency was issued by private commercial banks in the United States, the national banks. So banks that had federal charters had the authority. Now, they were restricted in various ways, in particular, they had to buy federal government bonds to back their currency to serve as a kind of liquidation fund in the event the bank failed. And there you see the fiscal motive pretty clearly at work. This was a civil war measure. How do we sell, how do we get somebody to lend us money, the union government says? We'll have the banks have to buy our bonds if they want to issue banknotes. Uh, so that was the arrangement. A sort of better model would be a freer banking system like Canada at the same period. So you've got nationwide branching of banks, banks issuing their own banknotes, but they're interchangeable. They all circulate at par value in terms of the uh, gold that they're redeemable for. Uh, so that's a system in which the quantity of money in the economy as whole is ultimately governed by the international gold standard the famous price specie flow mechanism, which says that if your price level gets higher than the world price level, your citizens will start buying imports. That'll make money flow out. That'll make your money supply shrink. That'll make your price level come back down to the world level. And then it will stop. You'll reach an equilibrium. So it was a kind of self-regulating system. So in that now, world... You know, recreating that in a world without an international gold standard, that's a real problem. But in that world, if there were a lot of recessions, just like yeah. now, there are recessions, the government just kind of twiddled its thumbs, I guess, right? Which would be disturbing to a lot of people, not just economists. There would be a political clamor for doing something. There, there is this widespread view, or myth, I should say, that business cycles were much more terrible uh, in that period. And it, there were bank runs, crises, panics. There were right? those things every so often because the U.S. had a weak banking system. But even given that weak banking system, if you look at aggregate data on recessions, if you look at variation in the out, real output of the economy, if you look at the length of recessions and the frequency of recessions, that system was no worse than the system under the Fed. And uh, George Selgin and Bill Lestraps and I have an article 
setting forth that evidence, mostly drawn from the work of other people who are not, you know, talking about free banking like uh, not crazy people. Christine like you. Romer, that's yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, I mean, that's that's what the the system looks like. So the Fed has not, in fact, delivered on the promise of stabilizing the business cycle. Of course, you could well, argue. Maybe it could. Yeah, or or yeah, just but need to hasn't. learn more. We need to learn more. You could argue that. The, the world as we know it is, um, I think this is still plugged in. That's good. The world as we know it is um, more complicated, more prone to business cycles, globalization. Who knows? There could be other arguments besides just the monetary framework that we're talking about. Being more diversified actually works against business cycles. I understand. I mean, we had agricultural think. shocks in You'd the think. 19th century. Locusts could cause a recession. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. Um, so let's talk about then, it will be hard to recreate that world because the, we don't have an international gold standard. We're in America. I assume that's general or any individual country. Right. Um, what constitutional constraints could we put on the current system that might improve matters? So let's not be crazy. Uh, we're stuck with the Fed. Uh, we're stuck with monetary policy. What should the Fed do? Uh, what should not? What should the Fed do? What restraint should be on the Fed uh, to keep it uh, from get us, getting us in trouble? Yeah. So I should. What say, are some of the choices? I should say that the the volume is a uh, the book we're talking about has a variety of proposals in it, so it's not all free banking by any means. You only get a chapter, right? I only get a chapter. Yeah, know, there, it's an oversight. There are a couple of other people who are. Favorable. Um, <laughs> uh, well, it, it's it's a good question. Uh, my view is that any constraint is better than no. Well, that's a little extreme. Yeah, I, don't know. <laughs> I know what you mean. Many meant. constraints are better than no constraint, and so uh, a popular constraint, which a lot of central banks have adopted in the last thirty years, is uh, an inflation target. Uh, and it seems to me that that's better than. No constraint. And the Fed has adopted an inflation target now explicitly, except that the Fed adopted it rather than Congress imposing it on the Fed. So the Fed could abandon it at any time. Uh, it's not a constraint in the same way uh, as a legislatively or constitutionally even better imposed uh, constraint. Uh, but I'm persuaded by arguments uh, in the volume and elsewhere that as far as fastening a rule on the Fed, a nominal income rule would be better. One that says... Explain how that would work. Yeah, so what the Fed should be concerned about is the total amount of spending in the economy, not just the stock of money and not just the price level. but not, And not the overnight interest rate or the federal funds rate. Certainly not rate. interest rates, that's right. But uh, what that would mean is if... There isn't any uh, additional hoarding going on or any dishoarding going on. Then the Fed just pursues even money growth. But if people want to, for whatever reason, want to hoard money, they want to hold more money balances relative to their spending, then the Fed should supply the additional money that people want to hold because the alternative is that spending drops off and that has real repercussions that we're better off avoiding. It's true that if the price level adjusted instantly, the market would clear and we'd yeah. be fine. But prices are sticky, I think, is uh, 
kind of a fact about the world we're living in. Well, and information's imperfect. You get a bunch of people show up at your store. You don't know if they're there because they have more money in their pocket or less uh, right. desire to, to hoard money, keep money, or whether your product's really great. So you make a lot. You can make a lot of real mistakes in the short run. That's right. Uh, trying to figure out what's going on. You can't ever figure out what's going on. So you people will inevitably make mistakes. So it'd be better. It would, the argument I think is it would be better if what I saw coming in my store was real rather than nominal. Would be one way to put it, right? That's right. And actually, stabilizing uh, nominal income is a better way of reducing that signal, uh, signaling problem that people have, that sellers of goods have, than stabilizing the price level. So some people who want to stabilize the price level will acknowledge this in the case of an adverse supply shock. So there's an oil price rise, let's say, in the US as an oil importing country. Uh, the price of oil goes up, the price of gasoline goes up, the price of things made with oil go up. If you want to stabilize the price level, you have to push other prices down so that the average level of prices doesn't rise. But the rise in the price of things made with oil is providing information. It's not clear why you want to sort of cloud that information by pushing other prices down, because that means a tight monetary policy, tighter than people expected. Uh, At least in the short run. So you're hitting the economy with a double whammy. It's got a real shock, and now it's got a monetary shock on top of that, both of them negative. Uh, and some people will, who favor a stable price level will say, okay, yeah, we, we grant it in that case. But then they should also grant it in the other case. If you have an increase in the productivity of the economy, either a positive supply shock or improvements in technology, improvements in labor productivity, or total factor productivity, you should let the prices of those particular goods that are now being produced more cheaply let those prices fall. Don't try to offset that by raising other prices. Or is that going to happen naturally? I mean, if an oil price shock doesn't cause inflation, the Fed wouldn't have to do anything. Are you talking about in the short run when the signals are confused, right? Yeah, so if it, those prices are going to fall. The Fed doesn't have to drive down the other prices. They're going to go down anyway on their own, right? Oh, eventually they'll go down on their own if people are spending more on oil. Yeah. Depends on the elasticity of demand for oil. Yeah. But if they're spending more on oil, right, they'll, they'll be spending less on other things. So the, the, the Fed wouldn't intervene there. I, I, to me, the, the issue is just measuring price indices accurately in a time where we're blessed to live, where quality's changing mm -hmm. <laughs> every day. So that Every day, almost, the world's getting better, and the products are getting better. And so assessing what's actually happen, happening the overall price level seems to me to be a difficult, much more difficult than it was uh, 25, 50 years ago when the economy was much more static. So to me, the question is, uh, is, is given that uncertainty, that measurement uncertainty, is nominal GDP targeting, is that going to be better? I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it makes any, I'm not sure that it really gets around that. Yeah, it actually is easier on that score because you don't need to know the right price index to do it. You don't need to, but the question is, are you, still, are you doing the right thing? Yeah, I think for the reasons we talked about earlier. But uh, it is a problem if you want to stabilize the price level that you have to take account of quality changes. And that's difficult. Uh, right? There are all kinds of, as you've been saying, quality changes that, that goods experience. So. If it's a simple thing like your tire lasts 60,000 miles instead of 40,000 miles, 
you can make an adjustment. But yeah. what if it gives you a better ride? Yeah. How do you adjust for that? What if it has a microwave oven in it? Well, it's <laughs> while you're driving along. And then how do you wait that? Yeah. So some people are under the misapprehension that it's harder to stabilize or to target nominal income because it's the product of real income and the price level. But that's actually not how it works. First, the uh, statistical authorities gather information on nominal income, and then they derive real income by dividing by a price level, which, which they also have, which to, they have to construct Correct. by going out with clipboards and writing down prices and then trying to make adjustments for quality changes. So you, you save yourself that trouble if you're just looking at total spending. Before we go on talking about the value, I just want to ask, make sure we get uh, this question in, which is um, the independence of the Fed is a um, popular conversational topic here in Washington these days. And I always find this moderately amusing. Should, should I, um, the idea that the Fed, you know, there's this fear that, oh my gosh, the Fed's going to have like these kind of constraints. It'll be politicized perhaps. And it seems to me it's, perhaps the most important political and politicized institution yes. in America. You want to say something about that? Well, I recall uh, Ben Bernanke uh, making joint press conference appearances with uh, Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson. So I think that the, that ship has kind of sailed uh, where the Fed says, oh, no, you know, we're, we're pure and chaste on this political influence question. Uh, Mark Calabria from Cato Institute wrote a piece recently saying, look, uh, independence for the central bank means independence from the executive branch. Right? They're not supposed to take instructions from uh, the president or the secretary of the treasury, which is what we've seen a gross violation of in, the, in recent years. It's impossible for the Fed to be independent of Congress. Congress wrote their statute. They can revise it. They revised it most recently in the Dodd-Frank Act. So uh, it's true we don't want Congress to sort of backseat driving monetary policy on a week-by-week -week basis. But calling for the Fed to account for its actions to Congress is not a violation of the kind of independence that matters for monetary policy. Yeah, it seems one of the strangest things you could possibly imagine, this idea that, I mean, it's a nice fantasy for economists. We're so brilliant and so I uh, have such high integrity mm -hmm. that you can just put us over here in this black box and we'll work all the levers and turn all the dials to make sure that the economy does great. And we don't, we never go to cocktail parties. We never get called down to Pennsylvania Avenue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all just a bunch of devoted technocrats working on their craft. And that seems to me to be a... And when we have a press conference to describe what we've done, we'll describe it in the most neutral, uncolored terms. Yes. We'll be completely frank and honest about <laughs> our success record. Yeah, which, which so that, that whole thing, to me, it, it strikes me that it'd be better to be open and transparent about the political nature of the Fed, where accountability, usually in a democracy, is a good idea, even if it's accountable to something as strange as Congress. But accountable to something would yes. seem to be a good idea. I, I just So the, the most shocking thing to me, uh, we had a partial audit of the Fed coming out of the Dodd-Frank Act, but even then, we didn't learn until there was a Freedom of Information Act suit against the Fed from Bloomberg News uh, that we learned that during the financial crisis, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York had a line of credit ready for Bank of America, 
and another one ready for Citibank in the event they should need it, right? Something that no other bank got. Uh, this should be public knowledge. Yeah. I mean, this should not be the Fed's call. We're sort of beyond monetary policy here. This is a credit policy. But yeah, when, it, when the Fed claims independence, it's ridiculous to claim it for some things that aren't even monetary policy, that are credit allocation policies. Well, they have a lot of responsibilities. They have a lot to take care of. <laughs> um, let's talk about another possible way we might uh, restrain the Fed that gets talked about, which is the Taylor Rule. So the Taylor Rule evolved as a description of what the Fed did during a time when the Fed seems, not the Fed, when the economy was doing well. And since people believe that those two are related, right. uh, they concluded that maybe this would be a good rule. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Taylor Rule as a possible constitutional constraint on the Fed? Well, I don't know if you have anything in the volume on it, so we might be going off. Uh, some people allude to it, but there isn't a, there isn't a very deep uh, discussion of the Taylor Rule, that's true. Uh, because it's hard to think of it in constitutional terms. Hard to think of an equation in the... Yeah, and it, it, it has some variables in it that it's up to the central bank to construct, like, uh, right, you're supposed to, uh, the Taylor Rule says the central bank is supposed to minimize a loss function, which has to do with the difference between the inflation rate and the desired inflation rate. That one's easy enough to measure. But the other is the difference between the output of the economy and the potential output of the economy. And potential output is completely... Uh, it's a will-o'-the-wisp. It's an extrapolation that, uh, you know, there are different ways of doing it. There isn't any one clear way of, of doing it. And since the financial crisis, real output has been consistently below its potential output. And you have to ask, how many years can that go on before they realize that the potential ain't what it used to be? Yeah. And the, the potential output has started to droop a little bit toward the path we're actually on. Uh, but I, I joked earlier about the fact that the political constitution, the U.S. Constitution itself, not the monetary part or the kind we're specu speculating about today, that the political constitution is its more of a suggestion. It's um, not exactly a commandment. We, we've, we've been flexible. Um, uh, one of my favorite uh, things here in Washington is the Jefferson Memorial. If you go in the Jefferson Memorial, you'll see quotes from Jefferson, and they've somehow managed, it was built during the Roosevelt administration, they found a, I don't remember it verbatim, I'll look it up and put a link to it, but you know, they found a quote from Jefferson that talked about the importance of flexibility and, and not being <laughs> you know, stuck with rules at a time when, of course, Roosevelt was trying to push the envelope on what the US government was allowed to do. So one view says you know, this whole constitution idea, although it's an interesting intellectual exercise, it's not really the, the issue because the real issue is what does the body politic really want from its monetary policy. And if the body politic wants uh, inflation or if a particular part of the body politic, the financial sector, has a lot of power and they get what they want, it's unlikely that a constitution will constrain what the, what the Fed might do or what, what the world might do. So I just want to propose an alternative, which would be, and I hate to say it because I'm against this, uh, but it, it, I think it's worth thinking about, which is just, we just have to pick the right person. George Stigler called, called this the, uh, the Ralph Nader School of Regulation when I, when I took his class. You know, Ralph Nader says we have the wrong people running the regulations. The ones we have now, they're bad. They're, they're, they've been influenced by, they're corrupt. They've been influenced by 
political pressure, and, and they're just the wrong ones. We need the right ones, and then everything will turn out okay. It's imaginable that if you put, say, John Taylor as head of the Fed, which is a, which is a, a possibility. Uh, it's it's uh, not like suggesting that I would be the head of the Fed, Larry. Um, if we had John Taylor as the head of the Fed, then we'd be pretty comfortable. It's true there's some slippage in the Taylor rule and definitions, but he'd be in a, it's imaginable yeah. that he would be constrained by his past statements and, and personal philosophy to stick with it. Similarly, if we had had earlier, if we had picked Milton Friedman to be the head of the Fed, that he might have followed a uh, optimal quantity of money rule or a, the equivalent of a computer-generated constant increase in the in, in the in M two say, what do you think of that as a possible solution? Well, like I, you, you'd be a good one. Mm. <laughs> the enthusiasm's boundless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunately true that under our current system, it does matter who's yeah. in charge, right? When G. William Miller was head of the Fed, uh, that was under the Carter administration, didn't go so well. They eventually kicked him upstairs and brought in Paul Volcker to replace him. So it does matter uh, who's in charge, but sort of cautionary tale here is when uh, Arthur Burns was appointed to head the Fed, Milton Friedman in his Newsweek column said, this is great, this is somebody who understands monetary economics, he'll do the right thing, he'll keep monetary growth moderate, and not a couple of months in office had gone by when Burns started talking about how, well, the economy is not behaving the way it's supposed to because uh, inflation and unemployment are not staying on the Phillips curve, and Friedman had to write to him and said, stop talking nonsense, Arthur. <laughs> and eventually, I mean, they, they stopped being friends eventually <laughs> because Friedman was determined to speak the truth, uh, even if it hurt Burns' feelings. So uh, Burns did not live up to uh, his advanced billing. And uh, yeah, I think I, I would feel more comfortable with John Taylor than uh, with Janet Yellen. But even then, it's, it's the wrong kind of system if the outcome depends really crucially on who gets appointed. That's too much risk. And the whole logic of a monetary constitution is like the logic of the, the rest of the Constitution of, of the United States, that you want to tie your own hands as to what sort of uh, wacky adventures the government can go, on to, uh, go off on. Uh, the, the sort of classical analogy, of course, is Ulysses tied to the mast so that he doesn't steer the boat uh, over to the island of the sirens and smash it on the rocks. Uh, and that's... It's, I mean, it's an important point. Just had a... So maybe what the, what the public wants in its, in its far-sighted self is to tie its own hands. They want a monetary system which can't be manipulated by the experts who are currently in charge. A recent Econ Talk episode with Mike Munger, we talked about uh, how when we choose in groups, we sometimes are willing to tie our hands. We're willing to give up some of our freedom. Voluntarily, we give up our freedom. And it's under for certain situations. The obvious one being, if I don't comply with the contract, you can put me in jail. You can take my money against my will. But that I signed the contract willingly. And if I didn't comply with the terms, I face the consequences because I understand that's a better world to live in. It's very hard for people to be, to accept um, hand tying arguments because the temptation is to always say, well, but, but it'd be better to have freedom to choose. I go to meetings where I agree I'm not going to talk unless I raise my hand and I'm called on. And everybody else agrees to it too. And the meeting goes more smoothly because of that. 
Absolutely. Although, you know, we mentioned the, getting the right person. I've always wondered if, if you, were, you or I were, were Secretary of Treasury in, in uh, 2008 <laughs> or 9, would we have had the courage to say no? Uh, there have been. Well, could we have stayed in office if we had had that courage? Well, that would be a different, that'd be another question, right? Obviously, there's tremendous political pressure, regardless of one's principles, to bail folks out. And I think the, again, that's the virtue of the constraints. And there are constraints, so other than legal constraints, other than legislative constraints, other than constitutional constraints. I just wanted to put that in, because I think it's important. I, I want to make sure we mention this. Um, if we did have some rules for uh, the monetary system, uh, there is an issue of an emergency, uh, which I, I kind of say, can't say with a straight face, but but you do talk about it. So, what would how would we deal with emergencies where uh, we might want to break the constitution, which we do, by the way, in wartime, with respect to the political constitution, we say it's an emergency, yeah. and we lock people up <laughs> in ways that we would never do uh, in in non-war time. So it would be better if we assume that there's going to be emergency actions taken to constrain them, uh, you might say in an emergency as defined by the following characteristics so that emergency can't just be declared, be declared at any time, uh, the following exceptions can be made, but only the following exceptions. So the, the Dodd-Frank Act actually uh, has a section that uh, deals with that have you read the Dodd-Frank Act? This section of it. Okay, just checking. <laughs> Not the other 2,000 pages. Okay. But, that, you know, I always like to point out the margins of the Dodd-Frank Act and other government bills, they're very large, the margins. So when you say 2,000 pages, it's not really 2,000. We're like maybe 1,200. Well, okay. it's still being written as we speak. Of course. Well, it's a, it's a living document. That's, that's the kind of quote that, if I remember correctly, FDR used of Jefferson about living document. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so... A lot of people were understandably upset that special bailout arrangements were made for a few identifiable firms, oh. Bear Stearns, yep. AIG. Uh, so the Dodd-Frank Act says that there can't be that kind of bailout for a single firm. There can only be a broad-based lending program to which general criteria for inclusion uh, apply. Now. It remains to be seen whether when push comes to shove, that'll be honored. Uh, we also had, a, I mean, the one reason to be pessimistic is that in 1991, Congress wrote the Financial just, Institutions Reform Act. I'm just thinking about that. Which said that there's supposed to be structured early intervention for banks with low capital. They're supposed to be wound up. And take completely out, completely ignored. And management should be taken out of office and replaced and... When, when the time came, it was completely ignored. Ignored, literally, right? So, well, there was a crisis. It was an emergency. Uh, it's a dangerous word. Just want to mention that. Um, you write, this is a quote, central bank histories around the world are equally or even more regrettable than the Fed's, with the exception of the Swiss, Swiss national banks. Uh, what's special, what is special about the Swiss? One, one argument would be, you know, this is the argument uh, I always like where people say, well, our school systems are awful and Finland's are good, although lately they've been doing so well in the international test. But put that to the side. Yeah. Ours are awful. Finland's are good. We'll just use Finland's. Hey, we've got a track. They got a track record. So should we, whatever Switzerland's doing, let's, let's have more of that. Uh, so it's just an observation that uh, 
the Swiss franc has had lower inflation than any other currency. Is that true? In the post-war period, yeah. Uh, as for explaining it, I'm not sure. Of course, Sw uh, Switzerland has an interesting constitutional setup, a very decentralized uh, government. We need cantons instead of states, whatever, with the whatever those are. With the exception yeah. of the Swiss National Bank, uh, which is a national institution. Uh, but exactly why they've been more responsible, I suspect it's sort of the good luck of having a history of uh, monetary economists who were concerned about avoiding inflation. And of course, a banking system which does banking for many more people than Swiss citizens. And bankers don't like their currency to be debauched. It's not a good way to attract customers. So I suspect that has something to do with it. Well, or you could be just that when you have, how many central banks are there in the world? 150, 120, 80, what's, do you have a rough idea? Fewer than the number of nations. Right, it's about, a, about 200 countries, right? Yeah. So let's say there's 100 central banks. You expect one of them to get right just by chance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess, I, I don't know, maybe that's a little too, uh, too pessimistic, too cruel. Uh, let's talk about a, um, a Bitcoin for a minute. We mentioned it earlier in passing. Uh, explain to folks what Bitcoin is and uh, what its potential. I, I those who remember the interview with uh, I did with Mark Andreessen will remember that I was, which was extremely eye-opening for me. Which was, uh, Bitcoin's real potential isn't as a competing currency; it's as a reliable payment system that would evolve, that would um, uh, remove some of the uh, transaction costs of transacting now in small amounts and the uncertainty about whether. When I make a transaction, you've actually, I've actually transferred the money. That's really fascinating. But other people are excited about it as a potential sure. currency or a monetary solution. So um, talk about it. When I spoke on this stage in November uh, at the Cato Monetary Conference, my paper was on the market for cryptocurrencies. And somebody in the audience asked that question. Can somebody tell me what is a Bitcoin? And bit tricky. Yeah, it's a bit tricky. So. I thought about it afterward, and this, this was the best I could come up with. Can't bite it. So, you can't check yeah. it for reliability. Uh, well, so gold was the original Bitcoin, because yeah. you used to <laughs> uh, So we had commodity money, uh, gold and silver coins. Then we had banknotes that were claims to gold or silver. It was an IOU. You could go to the bank, and they would give you the coins that you had coming. Then we introduced paper money that you couldn't redeem, so that's an IOU nothing. Right. That can serve as money if people accept it. Bitcoin is an electronic IOU nothing, but it's not issued by the government. It's produced by a computer program. Uh, and there's a, you know, a system of people whose computers are involved in the payment processing network. But that's a kind of metaphysical definition of what a Bitcoin is. But what's... What's special about it, among, there are a few things that are special about it. One of them is how many exist and how they come into existence. Right, so the, the really interesting thing about it from the point of view of a monetary constitution is that there is literally a program written down that governs the quantity of bitcoins. The path is predetermined, right? And there's nobody in a position to change that. There isn't any central bitcoin authority that has the power to just introduce more Bitcoins. Uh, the whole system of production is according to this program. Uh, so that has sort of interesting implications or sort of 
makes us think about other ways we might write a program to produce a money that instead of having a predetermined quantity path, might have a predetermined or stable purchasing power, or might be defined to have stable nominal spending in terms of that currency. Uh, so that's, that's its interest from the point of view of a, of a constitution. But you're right, it, the value of Bitcoin is that it's part of this payment system. Well, that's its value now, right, right potentially. Um, but right, the blockchain could be used for other purposes and, too. And I guess, to me, the fascinating thing is when you tell non-economists about it uh, who are not uh, cyber sophisticated, they say, well, why would anybody take it? And the answer, of course, is because... They could spend it somewhere, but then why would that person take it? And it, the answer is, I think fundamentally, people. there are people in the world who would like there to be an alternative to the dollar or a government-run currency, and they're willing to take the risk. They're not taking a risk of inflation because of this, if this program's correct. What they're taking a risk of is that they may accumulate the equivalent of the Russian ruble after 1917 when uh, the czarist ruble was, we have friends who said we, we used them as wallpaper because they were not legal tender anymore. So, the, you know, there's a risk if you... You know, if you hung on to your Confederate currency after 1860, it's actually performed better in purchasing power than the Federal Reserve note. Is that true? <laughs> yes. As a, as a collector's item now, you're saying? Yes, I, I can... Because can, uh... the quantity is Well, fixed. too many people <laughs> use them as wallpaper. That's the problem. They got Those people who held them got, got lucky, but... Um, so I, I think there is a, among renegade folks, there is a desire to yeah. uh, have an alternative and they're therefore willing to take a chance. They might not put their life savings into it, but eventually if enough people started to feel that way, we could get to a world of an alternative currency. I think there's any chance of that? Uh, I was going to agree with you that I think uh, sort of the bedrock of the demand for Bitcoins is from people who are enthusiastic about the project of a non-government currency. Uh, it does have a problem, which is uh, in getting more widely accepted as a medium of exchange for people to want to hold their checking account balances in Bitcoin, uh, which is that the value is right now rather unstable. Yes, it is. Uh, Despite the claim that this smooth path so of expansion. That's the quantity. Yeah. That's not the purchasing <laughs> power. So yeah. if demand goes down, there's no place for it to be felt uh, other than the price because it's not going to be felt in the quantity. Uh, so that's a uh, problem. Maybe if somebody introduces a cryptocurrency that has a more stable purchasing power, they can get that more widely accepted. Uh, as long as Bitcoin's path, uh, purchasing power was appreciating, it wasn't a problem that it was bouncing around the path. But now that it's down, uh, I think that's been a blow to trying to get it more widely accepted. Because there are a lot of entrepreneurs who are trying to introduce payment systems or consumer front ends uh, to make it easy for merchants to take payment by Bitcoin. So you write, quote, Bitcoin is something else again, a transferable private unit with a positive value unbacked by redeemability. Unlike Hayek's proposed unbacked private currencies, Bitcoin is guaranteed by clever programming to expand in nominal quantity only gradually along a known path. It is produced by decentralized mining rather than by any central issuer who could issue more at will. Because, and here's the key part I want you to talk about. 
because its volume cannot be unexpectedly expanded. I'm going to read that again. Yeah. So I butchered it. Because its volume cannot be unexpectedly expanded, Bitcoin is free of the time consistency problem that haunts Hayek's proposal. The temptation of a profit-maximizing issuer when nominal expansion has no cost to take the one-shot senior-rich profit from hyperinflationary overissue. Explain that uh, briefly. Okay, so one of the most interesting proposals in monetary regimes uh, over the last 50 years was Friedrich Hayek's monograph, The Denationalization of Money, uh, where Hayek started by saying, well, we shouldn't put any legal barriers in the way of people using a currency from another country or gold or silver if they want to. So don't try to stop people from fleeing a bad currency into a good currency, and maybe that'll discipline the issuers of bad currency to stop being so bad. Uh, and then he revised it to say, why not let private firms enter this competition? And if we think about it, maybe the reason we've never seen private firms issuing an unbacked money uh, is that it's been illegal. Now, I'm a little skeptical of that part. I think there's a reason why people would prefer a commodity money to an unbacked private money. And that's what I refer to in that last sentence, which is if you can, as a private issuer, can get people to accept a money which you have no obligation to buy back in terms of any underlying commodity or bundle of goods, uh, you have no contractual commitment to keep its purchasing power stable, you're just promising that that's what you're going to do. Once people start to accept that, you make a profit with every additional unit you can issue, whether it's in note form or bank balance form. And so there's a temptation to hyperinflate. And your it, brand name, your yeah, desire it, to continue It's true. It's a one-shot profit, and right. you destroy your brand name. But if that profit is big enough, right. and if you write down a model of it, it looks like the profit is uh, basically infinite until people react and stop accepting it. But... Uh, so I think maybe that's why we've never seen unbacked private money, not the absence of legal restrictions against it. I'm all in favor of letting people issue an unbacked private money, but there is this problem of how the users of it are going to trust you not to hyperinflate it. That's the problem that Bitcoin has solved by making the quantity written down into a program that's publicly observable. At least we think that's true. It's hard to... That's true. I trust that. <laughs> All right, it seems true, but we don't. We don't 100 percent now. I want to close with a couple of political questions, um, which is perhaps a bit unfair. You're not a political science scientist, but uh, I have to ask, and it's I think appropriate when you write a, a book called "Renewing the Search for a Monetary Constitution." When you edit a book like that, uh, so or when people in the volume are political scientists. Yeah, exactly. So you could draw on their knowledge. Okay. Um, does does the range of somewhat attractive alternatives, meaning marginal improvements to the Fed's behavior, reduce the political feasibility of creating a viable alternative to the current discretionary regime. So the current regime is discretionary. It's a lot of power to the Federal Reserve's chair, the board. Uh, there's a lot of political pressure involved. Uh, and everybody understands it could be better, but a lot of people think it's okay. And so they'll push it around the edges. You and I would probably like to see something a little more radical. What's the, uh, is there any chance of that, given that it's always time when you say, no, 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 that's crazy. Let's just do this. This will be good enough. 
Well, if you want to count the number of votes in Congress that would vote for something radical tomorrow, it's not going to be enough. Yeah. So it's going to take uh, either a crisis, which we, we hope we don't get. Right. We had something like we, it. We had a crisis that the Fed seems to have dodged most of the blame for, although they did get a, some slap on the wrist from Dodd-Frank, and they did get the partial audit. Uh, but we haven't changed the regime. We haven't constrained the Fed's discretion in the least. Uh, so it's going to... Having said that, though, there are more people in favor of a gold standard and more people in favor of radical alternatives to the Fed than any time in my lifetime. Still a small number, right? But Yeah, no, I, I never thought I would live to see a day when a book entitled End the Fed was on the bestseller list. Yeah, shocking, right? So let, let me close with this question. What's the purpose of imagining a policy change like the kind we've been discussing that seem to have virtually a minimal chance of passing? So there's more... There's more support now than before, but not very much. So it's just an academic exercise? Not entirely. You hope. <laughs> I hope. I mean, I think there's a practical value, and this is a point Milton Friedman made for many years, uh, in studying alternative institutions so that you, and, and developing proposals for them so that you have somewhere to turn when the institutions you've got are breaking down. So when the fixed exchange rate regime of Bretton Woods broke down, it was nice to have the reassurance that, look, we've studied the countries that have had floating exchange rates, and it worked OK. Uh, and so people felt a little better about uh, switching uh, and not trying to hold on till the bitter end of preserving the fixed exchange rate. So I think that's the kind of exercise we're engaged in here, keeping the ideas alive, keeping them under discussion. We're not making the last word here where it's, the title is renewing the search because we hope to attract other people to get into this discussion. Uh, there, there's too much discussion in the economics profession about either not conceiving any change in the Fed's operating procedure or sort of marginal adjustments in how the Fed might avoid some of the mistakes it's made. But we think it's time to uh, just like after the panic of 1907, they formed the National Monetary Commission to consider alternatives to the system they had. After the panic of 2007, it's high time to reconsider the fundamental alternatives uh, and have them ready for when we need them. My guest today has been Larry White. Larry, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. I couldn't help thinking, Ross, uh, when you mentioned how during military emergencies we lock up people we not, wouldn't normally lock up. My personal suggestion for an emergency clause to a, a monetary rule for the United States is that when we have an emergency, the first thing we do is lock up the FOMC. <laughs> uh, we have some time for questions and answers from the audience, uh, and then uh, as soon as we're finished with that, uh, we'll We'll uh, convene upstairs for lunch. Restrooms are on the second floor, as well as books for, uh, uh, as well as this book for you to pick up and have signed, uh, perhaps by its, uh, one of its editors. So uh, if you would identify yourself uh, uh, when called on to make a question, and please frame your question as a question so that we can keep the uh, questions short and the answers 
relevant. So uh, who would like to get on board right back there? Wait for the microphone, please. I'm, I'm still not clear whether you two feel that, uh, I mean, there is this argument that you brought up, but you really didn't answer it as to whether the, 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 there was an advantage for some discretion on the part of the Fed in case something goes askew, and whether you two feel that uh, that's the, the, this advantage is, is, is so dangerous that, uh, that maybe they shouldn't have that discretion. And, 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 and I'm wondering if you two might address this, just, just to sort of sort this out in my own mind as to whether that discretion is advantageous enough to keep or whether you ought to really have a, a lot of constitutional restraints on it. Okay, I, there's sort of two issues. One is, should the Fed have the discretion to bail out institutions when the private firms, when they're having, a, or semi-private firms like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, when they're having a problem? And I think no. I don't want an emergency clause that allows them to do that. Uh, the other question is about monetary policy. And if the rule the Fed is under is stabilize total spending, I don't really see the need for an escape hatch. If the rule was keep the money supply on a certain path, if suddenly people want to hoard money, then you got a problem and you should have an escape clause that says let's provide the money people temporarily want to hold. But if it's keep total spending on a smooth path, I don't see the need for an escape clause from that. Yeah, my only comment is that, you know, is it good to have a steering wheel for your car? Absolutely, really important. You don't want to put your car on autopilot, although a driverless car is gonna be, I suspect, dramatically safer than me in the car driving. But the other question would be, uh, how much play should there be in the steering wheel if I can't see out the windows? And sometimes the Fed is driving blind. That's the problem. The data it's using that's justifying the response it makes is wrong, not their fault. So uh, some of the arguments for discretion you normally have are not going to be there. In the back, all the way. Side to side. Please don't, uh, identify yourself if you don't mind. Thanks. I am Tim Cavanaugh from the Washington Examiner. Can we have that microphone on? It's not on. Or turned up. Hello? Yeah, better. I am Tim Probably. Cavanaugh from the Washington Examiner. Not uh, much better, though. It's not much better. Uh, uh, maybe I it. need to uh, there you go. do this. Okay. Yep. Should I maybe give you a little like that? Um, uh, what is the Taylor rule, and how does it differ from or relate to the Phillips curve? And are either of those, uh, you know, still is still in practice? Do they really exist? Okay, so the, the Taylor rule is a guideline for the Fed's interest rate policy, which has kind of been in abeyance for the last six years because we've just had zero interest rates. Uh, but the idea is to adjust the Fed funds target in response to inflation and the performance of real output. So if inflation goes up, raise the interest rate in order to dampen that. If real output goes down, lower the interest rate to try to boost that, because maybe credit is too tight and that's why output is going down. So and there's it, a specific it's a formula fixed relationship between the changes and the responding interest rates. So it tells you how much 
quantitatively the Fed funds target should adjust in response to these uh, data coming out of the economy. So when Taylor first wrote it down and estimated which parameters make it fit best, he was trying to describe the Fed's behavior under Greenspan. And then he said, well, that was a pretty good period. The housing bubble corresponded to a period in which the Fed was holding the Fed funds rate below what the Taylor rule was recommending. And look what happened. So Taylor has been pushing this as an explanation for why the economy went off track and recommending that if they get back to operating a Taylor rule, uh, things would be more smooth. December the Phillips curve. Oh, so the definition of, of the Phillips curve kind of changes from time to time, but uh, the Phillips curve originally was a relationship between the unemployment rate and the inflation rate, and it seemed to have a stable characteristic, and the proposal was that the policymaker's job is to pitch, pick where you want to be on this combination uh, of options. You want low inflation with high unemployment, or do you want high inflation with low unemployment? But those are your choices. Then in the 70s, we got high inflation and high unemployment, rising inflation and rising unemployment. That wasn't supposed to be able to happen. So that was the breakdown of the Phillips curve. Uh, when people talk about it now, they tend to mean a short-run relationship where loose monetary policy can get you a little more output and tight monetary policy can suppress output. And uh, right in the middle here. In the very middle of the room. Uh, hi, my name's uh, Ted Gebhardt. In various interviews that uh, he has given, uh, David Stockman has often claimed that the Fed's zero interest rate policy has led to massive mispricing of assets and prevents prices from doing their signaling function. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, I think a zero interest rate is lower than the market would produce if we can imagine a market without the Fed acting on the market. Kind of hard for them not to act because not to do anything given that people are uh, pricing bonds and expecting interest rates based on what they think the Fed is going to do. So anyway, but yeah, I think uh, zero interest rate is, is lower than it ought to be. Uh, the Taylor rule also says that. And low interest rates means that when you discount future cash flows, you get a much bigger number than if you're discounting at any positive rate. So asset prices are higher than they otherwise would be. Uh, and, and so the, there's a potential for asset bubbles, as we saw during the earlier period when uh, the price of mortgage-backed securities was higher than really was sustainable when we returned to more normal interest rates. So yeah, that's a danger. And there's an economist at the Bank for International Settlements, or he, he used to be, uh, named William R. White, no relation, uh, who's been writing a series of papers about this problem today. Right? The, the longer we have a zero interest rate policy, the more it's possible for bad investments to continue. And so when the correction comes, it's going to be painful. 
this gentleman. Hi, uh, I'm Stephen Lee from Global Client Consulting. I'd like to chat with you. Uh, for monetary constitution, should the focus be on uh, setting bounds on monetary policy or this is defining what a an effective monetary system or this or by that I mean this uh, defining this uh, what money is and this is setting that as a base so that everything else can basically work on that because right now we kind of uh, mix both of them in the discussion mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about monetary policy then we talk about definition of money I, I think this we we have to uh, differentiate the two okay uh, if you have a monetary constitution that specifies uh, gold or silver or any commodity money as the basic monetary unit, uh, then you don't need a central bank. So you don't need rules telling the central bank what policy to pursue. Right? The rest of the money is issued by competing private firms and the system regulates itself. If you switch to a fiat money system where the dollar today is nothing but a unit of Federal Reserve, well, we call them liabilities, even though they're not payable, a unit of Federal Reserve liabilities, then you need to give instructions to the issuer of these liabilities about uh, what policy to follow in issuing them. It doesn't need to be an interest rate policy. So the Taylor rule is a specification of an interest rate policy. Uh, an alternative is the McCallum rule, which is a specification about how the monetary base should behave. Uh, in, in some of Scott Sumner's proposals, there's a futures market, a prediction market in nominal income, which determines what the path of the monetary base should be. Uh, and so there's kind of an automatic feedback mechanism and no discretionary monetary policy. And the Fed's job is just to behave the way the market is telling it to behave. So there, there are different ways to specify the policy. But yes, if you have fiat money, then you need to have, in order to have it constitutionally constrained, something that tells you what the policy ought to be. I think we're out of time, actually. Uh, we're going to stop a little bit early because it's, it's a later session than usual. But uh, we can continue uh, upstairs over lunch. You'll have time to ask some direct questions of both of our uh, uh, of our guests, and so let's thank them, though, right now for a great session.